right, good morning. So thankful for the privilege to be back here at Trinity and to share with you folks God's Word this morning and to be reminded again of what God is doing through our ministry in Peru. Thank you for your faithful support these years that we've been in Peru. Many of you may not know who we are. My name is Caleb, my wife Echo, our four children, Joe, Jack, Isabel, and Isaac. We have the privilege of serving God with Baptist Remissions in the country of Peru, in the city of Trujillo. We were here in late 2011 to present our ministry during a missions conference. And then in late 2013, we left for the field and have been gone for most of that time. We got back to the States here just shortly before last Christmas, and we've been busy traveling around the States, visiting our supporting churches during this year of furlough ministry here in the States. So you haven't seen us for a long time, but part of most of that is because we've been out of the country for most of the time that we've been away. And we're so privileged to serve God on your behalf in Peru. We're going to take just a couple of minutes here before we look into God's Word to give you an overview about what God is doing in our lives and ministry. I'd encourage you, if, it's not, if it wasn't your plan this morning to stick around for lunch, stick around for lunch. I think there's going to be plenty of food. And if not, at least you ought to be back for the 1 o'clock service if God allows you to do so. Because we're going to have the chance to talk in more in detail about what God is doing in Peru and to look at maybe some chance to answer some questions about who we are and what God's doing there through us. We serve in the city of Trujillo on the coast of Peru. It's a lot different area of the world than where we are today. I'm looking forward to winter. It's just right around the corner. I know probably most of you are not. But the reason why I'm looking forward to winter is because where we live, we're about 500 miles south of the equator and about a mile and a half off the ocean. It's beautiful. We're in the middle of one of the driest deserts in the world, so we get about an average of a quarter inch of rainfall per year. But the disappointing part of that is there is no change of seasons. Now, to a Peruvian, there's a lot of change of seasons because we have summertime where it's 85 or 90 during the day and 78 or 80 at night. And we have wintertime where we drop to the depths of 55 degrees during the nighttime and get up to about 70 during the day. So for them, there is a very warm season and a very cold season. For me, it's just humid and hot all the time. I'm happiest when it's about 30 below zero. But that doesn't ever happen in Peru. Uh, in, when, we, when our students come from the jungle to the coast to come to our Bible school, their winter time is about 75 degrees and rain. And so they come to the coast where it's 55, and they're walking around with their winter hats and gloves and scarves and three or four layers of clothing. And I'm wondering, why do I have to wear a tie to class? Because it's too hot. But that's just a different part of the world where we live. We will be here in the States, Lord willing, until just shortly after Christmas. Our goal is to head back the first week or so of January. So when we fly out of Indianapolis or Chicago, likely it will be below freezing. When we arrive in Lima at about 10 o'clock at night, it should be about 85 degrees and 90% humidity. So that's why I'm looking forward to winter, because the very few weeks that we will get of it will be a wonderful experience for us. Uh, we have served these last three years at La Iglesia Bautista Cristo es el Camino. Christ is the Way Baptist Church in the city of El Milagro. It's a new church plant. The uh, church has been around for about eight years. We've been with them for three of those years, working alongside of a national pastor and his wife. And by God's grace, through these years of ministry, we have a pretty stable congregation of about 65 folks on Sunday mornings. And so we're thankful for those that God has brought to us, for the way that the church is growing, for the work that God has done. Uh, that's a picture of our church family just a couple of weeks before we left to come back to the States. And so we're so thankful for the privilege we've had of working alongside of them. As I said, I, we work alongside of a national pastor. And so I work kind of as assistant pastor slash co-pastor slash senior pastor. Depends on the week, on the responsibilities, on those kind of things. Largely working in teaching and preaching. Typically preach, I preach Sunday morning and Sunday night. 
and then working with the administrative and discipleship needs of the church, making sure everybody's heading in the right direction, doing what we need to do to make, get the church functioning well, and then working with our new believers and with our men to disciple them and help them to fulfill the responsibilities that God has given to them. That's the big goal of missions, is to train national believers how to do the work so that in our absence they can continue to serve well. The other big aspect of our ministry is working in El Seminario Bautista del Peru, which is our Bible school, the Baptist Seminary of Peru. We call it a seminary because in our context in Peru, uh, the only thing that we have after high school is either technical school or university. And we are neither a technical school nor a university. But in our largely, our predominantly Catholic context, seminary means you're training to be a pastor. And so we use that word, uh, but it's a four-year Bible school. And we have about 60 students that come to us from all over South America. And we even have had one lady with us for the last four years from Spain. Uh, because Bible resources, Bible ministries such as ours are very scarce in our Spanish-speaking context. Here in the States, we have so many resources accessible to us. And in Peru, there are a lot of resources, but most of them either cost a lot of money or come from people who really don't treat God's Word properly. And so there are very few places where you can go and learn about the truth of God's Word so that you can go out and be a pastor or a missionary or even just a faithful deacon, a faithful church member. And so God has given us a marvelous privilege of training young men and women to go out and be the next generation of laborers in God's mission fields all around the world. I have the privilege of serving on the administration. I work as, I've worked these last years as supervisor, which is kind of like dean of students slash dad. Depends on the time of day and the needs. Uh, but working and helping our students to learn how to live godly, disciplined lives so that as God allows them to go forward and serve in the ministry, they can continue to serve him faithfully. And I also love teaching. I do a lot of teaching, probably too much. I typically teach about 12 to 14 classes a year, most of them on site, though probably three or four of them are typically off-site during the year in some place in the, the far out reaches of the jungle or high up in the mountains of Peru somewhere. I'll have a chance to talk a little bit more about that uh, this afternoon in the time of ministry. One need that I want to present to you this morning just briefly is our student scholarships. It costs our students about $1,000 a year to go to school. That's incredible. If we could send our kids to college for $1,000 a year, I think we'd probably all do it. We'd probably all go back to school ourselves. In our context, $1,000 a year is a tremendous amount of money. The average hourly laborer on the coast of Peru, and on the coast of Peru, it's a lot better, a lot more stable than it would be in most of the rest of the country. But the average hourly laborer in our area makes about $1.50 to $1.75 an hour. And so if you do the math, $1,000 a month, that's a lot of, that's a lot of working uh, at a dollar, or I'm sorry, $100 a month, it's a lot of working at $1.50 to $1.70 an hour. So one thing we've been able to do these last years is provide for our students scholarships. And we don't give scholarships to all of them, we, and we don't give scholarships to just anybody. But those students who are growing spiritually, who show that they ha are learning and that they're putting into practice what they do, we provide for them work scholarships, so we don't just give them money for free either. But what they do is they work for us at the school, on our property, doing things that somebody was going to have to do already. Whether that's taking care of the lawn, or whether that's the, some of our married guys that stay up at night and watch the property, very important thing in our context where we live, or folks at work in the administration, uh, helping in the offices to make photocopies and answer the phone when people call or students at work more in leadership responsibilities, our dorm leaders and things like that. 
We give them different responsibilities on the campus. So they're working alongside of our administration and some of our staff members as well in their leadership times, and, and, and we're able to continue that process of discipling them, of helping them to grow. By God's grace, we've been able to help nine or ten students each semester these last couple of years, and as God provides, we trust to continue to be able to do so and continue to be able to invest in the future generations of laborers there in Peru. If God would lay on your heart to participate with us in that in any way, feel free to chat with me after the service or send me an email uh, at some point in these next couple of weeks. I'd be glad to talk with you about what that looks like and how you can do that. On the table in the back, we have our prayer cards. We'd love for you to grab an updated prayer card, stick it in your Bible, on your refrigerator, in your dartboard, somewhere where you can remember to look at it occasionally and remember to pray with us and for us for the work that God is doing. We also have bookmarks. There it goes. We have a bookmark that it reminds you to pray for our Bible school and our students. Pray for them this week. They're headed out on uh, ministry trips. Once each semester, we send all of our students somewhere around Peru, and some of them even travel across the border up into Ecuador, which by bus is about a 20-hour drive. And they travel. They left most of them on Friday. Some of them are left yesterday, and the rest will leave this morning to head off to somewhere in Peru or Ecuador and work in a church this week. So put into practice some of the things we're learning. Some of them will be working in Bible clubs at the church. Some of them will be in public schools presenting the gospel in classrooms each hour of the day through the classes classes they have access to. Some of them will have special meetings in the evening, and they have taken with them a pastor or a professor from our school who will be preaching, and they'll be running kids' programs and doing other things in the evening times. But all of them will be busy doing a lot, uh, doing about the same quantity of work, but a lot different work than they normally do when they're in the school week. So pray with them as they travel around the country this week that God would bless them, that God would give them grace, help them to speak his truth clearly, and bring them home safely, Lord willing, uh, by next Sunday evening so they can be ready for their classes again on Monday. Thank you for your support of our ministry. Thank you for your faithfulness and giving. Thank you for praying for us, and it's such a joy to have the opportunity to be back again today and to share what God is doing. And again, we'll look forward to do that this afternoon in the afternoon service. So if you're able to stay, please do so, and we'll have the privilege of working together this afternoon to see what God is doing there in Peru. I invite you to go with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2. Paul reminds us in these verses of Philippians chapter 2 of a tremendous need in each of our lives as people, as Christians, as servants of God. That tremendous need is the need for humility. I'm really excited to preach about humility today. I bet probably not as excited as you are to hear me preach about humility though, right? Humility is a necessary subject in each of our lives, though it is for many of us a difficult subject. So as we consider what God has for us this morning, let's pray for just a moment, ask God's blessing on the time we have together, ask him to continue to prepare our hearts and to speak to us clearly through his word this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings that we have of being here this morning. Thank you for the life and the health that you have given to us. Certainly gifts that often we take for granted, but nonetheless tremendous gifts of grace that you have bestowed upon us in giving us both life and health in spite of our sins, in spite of our foolish decisions, in spite of the sinful world around us, we have the wonderful opportunity today to live the truth of your word, to hear the truth of your word, and to respond to it in a way that would glorify you. God, thank you for the privileges that we have as United States citizens of living in a country where we can freely gather together 
and sing your praises, where we can worship you, where we can participate publicly in the reading of Scripture, in the preaching and the teaching of your word. Thank you for those who are serving on our behalf throughout this building and throughout the world in other parts of the world today. Thank you for the many different blessings and privileges that you have given to us. Help us to always be reminded of them and to remember to thank you for the blessings that you have bestowed so freely upon us. Thank you, as we've sung this morning, that you are a God who is faithful, that you are a God who works in all things, that you're a God who is interested in saving men and women and children of many different places all around the world, and that you are a God who is accomplishing that work today. And even as we encounter difficulties and discouraging circumstances, we can cast upon you all of our cares because you do care for us. And you are at work in each and every one of those situations to accomplish your sovereign purpose. God, I pray that in these moments as we look into your word, that our hearts would be still and our minds would be quiet, that we would truly understand what it is that you are teaching us through your word this morning, that we would not be concerned with how so-and-so should respond or how such-and-such might take place, but that we would honestly examine ourselves in the light of your scripture this morning, that you would change us, that you would correct us, that you would encourage us in whatever way is necessary that we might live the truth of your word faithfully with the time that you've given to us. May you be honored and glorified in what we do and say in these moments. We pray in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We said this morning we want to look into what Paul reminds us in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 2. We can be reminded of humility. And truly, humility is one of our greatest needs, if not our greatest need in the world in which we live today. I wonder, have you seen my latest book series? It's incredible. It's a trilogy, and I promise it will transform your life. First volume is Humility, My Life is God's Choice Servant. Second volume, Six Steps to Humility and How I Mastered Each One. And the most recent volume, The Ten Most Humble Servants of God and How I Trained the Other Nine. (laughs) Humility is kind of like that, isn't it? The moment we think we've captured it, we really haven't. The moment we think that we finally learned it is probably the moment we're we're most recognizing how far we have to go. Humility is, is a difficulty. I wonder, how many of you are really humble this morning? Anybody want to volunteer? (laughs) Maybe a better question is, how do I recognize pride in my life? Pride evidences itself in three very common ways. Quick to criticize, quick to take offense, and quick to defend myself. Is that me? Is that you? Yeah. Uh, How many of us have faced that? Don't raise your hand. But how many of us have faced that even this morning? Quick to criticize, quick to defend myself, quick to take offense. Most of us live in that condition each and every day. Our society says God helps those that help themselves. Could there be a more proud expression of our American free will? Does God really help those who help themselves? The Bible says that God takes offense against the proud, but God helps the humble. God helps the one who recognizes that he can't and that God can. Humility is the mortal enemy of all people, especially Christians, because Pride is the foundation of every sinful thought and practice and action and choice that you and I experience on a daily basis. Pride is really probably our most natural characteristic as human beings, and pride expresses itself in every culture that exists on the face of the earth. But humility is what you and I must learn as believers. Paul reminds us that humility is key to our relationship to God, 
in our service to his church. Consider with me the measure of true humility and the supreme model of humility this morning. Let's look through what Paul says in these verses. First, let's read through what he says in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 2. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Paul reminds us of two important truths about our humility this morning. The first that we see in verses 1 through 4 is we need to measure our humility by God's standard. First truth, measure your humility by God's standard, verses 1 through 4. He says right there at the beginning of verse number 2, If therefore there be if there be therefore any consolation in Christ. Therefore, what does that mean? He's, he's referring us back to what he's already talked about in chapter 1. And we don't have a long time this morning to go back and walk all the way through chapter 1. But just briefly consider the fact that in chapter 1, Paul reminds the Philippians of why we do what we do. And he says we do what we do because Christ has saved us and because Christ is at work in us. We need to live worthy because we are God's servants. We are God's children. And we live worthy by standing firm upon the truth of the gospel, by striving together for the truth of the gospel, and by suffering persecution for the truth of the gospel. Paul says, I'm in prison, but God's at work. We don't have to worry about that, because God has a purpose even in my sufferings. In Philippians, you're encountering a lot of different problems, a lot of different situations, but God's at work as well in your situation, and we need to continue to be faithful because God is faithful. Paul says, as a result of God's faithfulness, Verse, chapter 2, verse 1, if there be therefore any consolation of Christ. So because of all of this, we can know that we have confidence in what God is going to do. The other thing we need to understand quickly this morning is that first word of verse number 1, if. You say, why do we need to talk about the word if? I know what that means. Well, it, it, if is an important word in this, con- in this context. In the context. In the Greek, Paul is presenting a condition. And we might say, you know, if we would understand that, I would say, if I were short, I'd have a lot of trouble reaching that shelf. I've never had to say that in my life. Ever. I can't even... I remember when I was eight, my feet finally reached the floor. When I was sitting in the pews at church, I I couldn't swing my feet anymore. That was a sad day. I don't ever remember being short. That's just the reality of life. I could say, if I were short, I'd have a lot easier time doing a lot of things in life. But is that a reality? We understand that. If, when I say, if I were short, we understand that's, that's not a possibility. Paul, so what I might say is instead, if I were married, oh wait, but I am, so since I'm married, I need to do this. Paul expresses a condition, but what he's showing us is a condition that's really an impossibility. So as we think through verse number one this morning, let's think through it in this way. Paul says, since there is consolation in Christ, since there is comfort of love, since there is Fellowship in the Spirit, since there are bowels and mercies. Okay, what, what do those things mean? Since there is consolation in Christ, 
That word consolation talks about someone that comes alongside of you to lift your spirit and instruct you in the truth. There is encouragement in Christ, Paul says. Since there is comfort and consolation in Christ, he encourages us with the truth that we are his and that he is at work in us at all times. Paul says, since we have confidence that Christ is with us. Then he says, since there is comfort of love. What is that comfort? That comfort is to speak to someone in a friendly way. For some of us, that's a little more challenging than others. For me, that's a little more challenging than probably it is for you. Some of us tend to be more critical. Some of us tend to be more negative. But Paul says, since there is the comfort of love, since there is the reality that Christ loves you, he says to the Philippians, and I love you and you love one another. Did you ever stop to think about that? Surely you have. God's love is amazing. If we are, if we are his, if Christ has forgiven us of our sins, then we have the confidence of God's love at every moment. Do you know that your God loves you? I'm going to step out on a limb here. I don't know your pastor well. I had the chance to eat dinner with him last night, and we enjoyed our time together. But did you know your pastor loves you? Did you know that we can love one another, even the really weird cousins that God brings along? Paul says, since there is this comfort of love, does that bring you comfort? It ought to. Continuing on in verse 1, since there is fellowship, of the Spirit. Fellowship is a partnership that we have because of the Holy Spirit. Partners are two people or multiple groups of people that work together to accomplish a common purpose. In a partnership, there's a lot of things that are shared, and we're going to talk about those things in the verses that come ahead. But we have a partnership. Why? Well, we have a partnership because of the consolation in Christ, because of the comfort of love, but we have a partnership because of the work of the Spirit. We have a partnership because God is at work in us. His supernatural work brings us a partnership. Since there are bowels and mercies, Paul there is using some words that talk to us about emotions and actions. Our ability to show mercy is a result of God's mercy to us. None of us is merciful by nature. That's one of the biggest challenges as a parent, isn't it? To show mercy to our children, even in moments when they don't deserve mercy. That's one of the biggest challenges, I'm sure. If God would have challenges, I'm a challenge to God. Because God shows mercy to me, even when I don't deserve it either. His mercy allows us to see the needs of others and do our part to make a difference in their lives. That's what compassion is. When Christ looked on the multitudes, he was moved with compassion, the Bible says. Because God is merciful. Since we have Therefore, the consolation in Christ, the comfort of love, the fellowship of the Spirit, bowels and mercies. What does Paul say in verse 2? Fulfill ye my joy. That seems pretty selfish. And it would be selfish if it weren't for what comes afterwards. Paul isn't saying, make me happy. Paul's saying, do what's right. Paul says, I, I am joyful when you live the right way. Much like what John says in 3 John verse 4, I have no greater joy than that my children walk in the truth. Paul says, since God is at work in you, live the right way today. He says, fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Paul presents to us three ways in which we can measure our, our humility. The first measurement is in verses 1 and 2, and it's the the word unity. 
How can we measure our humility? We measure it through the, through the test of, humi- of unity. What does unity look like? Notice what he says. Verse 2, be like-minded, of the same mind, of the same convictions, not fighting against one another. And we're going to see later on in the book of Philippians that there was some internal conflict. There were at least two parties at conflict in the Philippian church, and Paul calls them out by name. And he says, stop. Because we don't need to be fighting against one another. We need to be fighting for the same thing. He says that we be like-minded, having the same mind, the same convictions. He says later on in verse 2, the same love. You know what the truth is? We're very different people. I don't know if you've noticed that recently. We are. Some of you are a little bit confused in your Lions fans. And that's okay. God loves Lions fans too. Bears fans, I'm not quite sure. Some of you are really confused and you just haven't come over to the light and you're not Packers fans yet. I knew I had at least one ally down here. We're to, and that's a really basic example, but the reality is if we would talk about all the things we like and dislike, there'd be a lot of disunity among us, wouldn't there be? Because there's a lot of differences of opinions. But Paul says, you know what? We're different, but we shouldn't have favorites. That's what that means. That's what that word means, the same love. It's easy to have favorites. We tend to gravitate towards those who are most like us. We tend to gravitate towards them. Why? Because there's less conflict the more that we have in common. But Paul says in the church, we need to have the same love. There's no discrimination. There's no, hey, but he's better or she's better. Oh, but I can't stand her. I can't stand him. Paul says we are of one mind and we have the same love. Why? Because we share the same heavenly father. He says of one accord. That word there is soulmates. It speaks of an internal unity, not outward uniformity. We're not all the same. We're not all going to be the same, and we're not all going to think the same. But we need to have the same vision, the same purpose. Of one accord, it's the same attitude that leads to the same desires. We need to have the principal attitude that God be glorified in us and through us and as a result of our work. And if that's our unifying factor, we're going to still face some challenges, but we can follow ahead like-minded, the same love of one accord, of one mind. That all speaks of unity. The second test, true humility, seeks biblical unity with other believers for the glory of God. The second measurement is in verse number three, and that's the idea of consideration. What is consideration? Well, he tells us right away, verse three, it's not strife or vainglory. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Strife is selfishness, seeking my own way and my own glory. Making divisions just for the sake of making divisions. Well, I think, I think that the Bible should have a black cover on the outside of it. And if your Bible doesn't have a black cover, you should change. Or I think that the only acceptable color of the church pew is purple. And if you're not in favor of it, we make divisions about a lot of things, don't we? Some of them, some divisions are necessary because the Bible says we have to stand on truth. I'm not saying we just get rid of all the divisions, no. But we shouldn't make unnecessary divisions. He says, let nothing be done through selfishness. There's a lot of opinions that I have that I need to keep to myself because if I shared them with everybody else, I'd not have very many friends in life, including my wife. But we need to, be, we need to learn to have humility, which comes through not pushing our own agenda all the time. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. What's vainglory? As it says, it's empty glory. It's, it's magnifying my name and my accomplishments. Look how great I am. I'm a pretty amazing person, aren't I? 
if, if we truly understand who we are in the light of God's presence, we can't possibly magnify ourselves. The fact that I got out of bed this morning speaks to the fact that God is merciful and powerful because I didn't want to wake up when my alarm went off. And I didn't want to have the strength to have to get out of bed. But God did it. Paul says, vainglory, promoting my self-image above all things. He says, let nothing be done through pushing my agenda or, pushing or promoting my own self-image. But what, is, what, is, what ought we to do? What is consideration? It's lowliness of mind. And we can really substitute that word we're talking about this morning, humility. But in humility, what is lowliness of mind? It's not thinking less of yourself than others. That's what most of us think that humility is. Oh, if I would just stop thinking that I'm worse than other people, or if I would just stop comparing myself to other people. No, humility isn't stopping to think about how I am with relation to other people. It's just stopping worrying about that at all. It doesn't matter whether I'm bigger or better or worse. It's irrelevant. I am who I am by the grace of God. And I can serve him because he's faithful. Humility isn't saying, oh, well, I'm better, or oh, well, I'm worse, or oh, well, I wish I could. No, it's just, it's just getting rid of all of that. He says, in lowliness of mind, it's not worrying about those things. Consider, he says in verse number three, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. That word esteem is the word consider. It's a mathematical equation. So he says, take account of what's really going on and look at the end and see that others are more important than you. Why? Because others, there's a lot more others than there are you. And God's purpose is a lot bigger than just you. So he says, let each esteem others better than themselves. Stop worrying, Paul says, about your own ambition, your own interest, your own opinions. Just put others first. Listen, love, serve, encourage. And who wins in the end? We all do. Because if we all have that perspective, we all are working together to accomplish God's purpose. True humility unselfishly regards others as more valuable so if we want to measure our humility by God's standard, we need to measure it by, first of all, unity. Are we living in unity? Secondly, consideration. Are we considering others as important? And he gives us the third measurement in verse number four, perspective. Perspective. Why is perspective important? It says, Let, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Notice what Paul does not say. Paul does not say stop taking care of yourself. Please take care of yourself. Please continue to shower and wash your clothes and eat enough food so you don't pass out during the service. If you smell nice, people will like you. Okay, And and I realize we're adults. We don't need to talk about that this morning. But Paul's not saying give up everything just to serve God and stop worrying about everything and let God take care of it. That's not what he says. There's a lot of people in Peru that think that that's true. I have a lady that comes to church occasionally, and she reminds me every time she comes, Pastor... You're a rich North American. What you need to do is get rid of your riches, help the people, and live like us. That sounds really good, but what is she really saying? She's saying, give me everything you have so I can live like you. That's that's really what she's saying. (laughs) That's not God's path to happiness and success. God's path to happiness and success isn't, I I should help everybody else in the community and my kids can forage in the backyard for food. Okay? There, there are extremes we need to avoid. One extreme is selfishness. The other extreme is self-abandonment. Paul does not say abandon yourself and just trust God to take care of everything. What, is he, what does he say? Look not every man on his own things. He says don't just look at your own stuff, but also on the things of others. 
He says, keep your priorities straight. You're not the end game. You're not the only one. You're not the most important thing. Take care of yourself, but while you're taking care of yourself, don't forget to take care of others. You might say, well, what are the needs of others in the church? You want to learn about their needs? Just ask them. Talk to somebody you haven't talked to before you leave this morning. Say, hey, how can I pray for you this week? Maybe you have to say, first of all, I don't even know your name, sorry. I haven't, we haven't had the chance to meet yet, but hey, I'm so-and-so, what's your name? How can I pray for you this week? That's really weird and uncomfortable, isn't it? It ought not to be. You might say, how can I be a blessing to you this week? You see one of those frazzled young moms? Maybe she needs a morning off so she can go out and get the shopping done. Maybe you have a chance that you can just say, hey, can I come over and watch your baby for a little while? You see somebody that's hurting? You don't have to go over and sit with them on the couch and talk to them for an hour, but you can call them on the phone or send them a text message. Say, hey, I'm praying for you this week. I want you to know that God brought you to mind and I'm praying for you. You see somebody that has real physical needs? You say, well, I don't have a lot of resources. I get that. None of us has a lot of resources. But it doesn't cost that much to help somebody. Say, hey, can we go out to lunch on Tuesday and pray together and talk about what God's doing in our lives? That's what consideration is. Paul says, look for ways to be a blessing to other people. That's why God brought you here. Did you know that? Trinity Baptist Church does not exist to fix you. Trinity Baptist Church exists because you have the opportunity to be a blessing to other people. Because God is at work in your life. True humility keeps my desires and my needs in the right perspective. Paul says if we want to be humble the way that God commands that we are humble, we need to look for unity. We need to have consideration others, and we need to have the right perspective. We need to measure ourselves by God's standard. But then secondly, model your humility after Christ's example. Model your humility after Christ's example. Verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. It took upon him the form of a servant, was made in likeness as a man. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We have lots of role models in life. Unfortunately, most of our role models aren't very good role models. Most of our role models tend to be athletes, movie stars, billionaires, people in politics, people who we wish secretly that our lives could be like, but at the same time, we recognize our lives will be a disaster if our lives were like theirs. But Paul says, you want a good role model? Look at Jesus Christ. There's a lot of great theology in these verses, and truthfully, we could spend the next three or four days or years talking about really what all of these things mean in, this, in these verses. We can't do that this morning. But we want to look through briefly what God says to us and how we can apply that to our lives. You might say, who in the world could live the way that Paul commands? Who really could be humble? Who really could have unity and consideration for others and keep things in the right perspective? Is that even possible? That's a fair question. Because if we recognize the selfishness and the pridefulness in each of our hearts, we can't do it on our own. But Paul says, who can do this? And the answer is simple. Jesus Christ says in verse 5, let this mind be in you. That's a plural command. Okay, it, We miss that a little bit in our English context, and that's okay, because that's how language works. But Paul says, church, all of you need to have this perspective. This isn't just an individual command. This is a corporate command. If we're going to serve God, we've got to do it together. If we're going to have humility the way God wants us to, we've got to do it together. Let this mind be in you. What mindset, what, what should we do? 
we need to have the same mindset that Jesus had. He did not think of himself. He did not hold on to, to his own status. He humbled himself. It says in verse 6, Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Being in the form of God. What that phrase says is that Jesus existed before the beginning. Okay? There's a lot of debate about that in the world today. There's a lot of false religions that teach that Jesus is either a creation or maybe he existed from the beginning, but he became God later on or became like God later on. What Paul says very clearly for us this morning is that before time existed, Jesus already existed. And Jesus was already God. That word form does not speak that he, you know, he had the shape of God. No, it speaks that he is the very essence of the God of gods. Okay? Let that truth sink in for just a moment. Jesus is the very God of gods. That's foundational to everything else we're going to say in the rest of this morning. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being the very God of gods, what did he do? Who being the very God of gods, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That word thought in verse number six is the word esteem that we saw in verse number three. Remember what Paul said in verse 3, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others, let each count others more, more than themselves. Now he says in verse number 6, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He did not count it as a bad thing, or he did not count it as a, as a necessary part of his existence. He did not consider his prominence or his position as more important than God's purpose for him. You understand that? Think for a moment, God can't sin, but think for a moment that Jesus could have said, no, I don't want to. Was it fair that Christ was sent to earth? Absolutely not. Was it fair that he had to live in frail humanity for 30 some odd years? Absolutely not. Was it fair that he died a humiliating death on the cross? Absolutely not. Did he deserve that? No. But Paul says Jesus did not say to God, God, that's not fair. Jesus didn't say, but, but look at who I am. No, in lowliness of mind, in humility, he did not consider himself as more important than God's purpose. He surrendered his rights voluntarily. When God determined in eternity past that Jesus would die on the cross, Jesus voluntarily and willfully submitted to the Father's purpose. We can't understand what that means. That's beyond our grasp. But Paul says this is a supreme example, that Jesus himself is in submission to God the Father. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. That, that phrase there literally means he emptied himself. Now that creates a whole lot of confusion for us. And there's a lot of debate about what that means and what that shouldn't mean and what that should mean. We can't settle all of that this morning, but let me tell you very clearly what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus stopped being God when he came to earth. Jesus is and was and forever will be 100% God. But let me tell you what it does mean, at least in part, that Jesus voluntarily accepted all of the restrictions and limitations necessary to live as a human. Jesus, the God of gods who spoke and all things came into existence, had to learn how to talk, had to learn how to walk, had to learn how to feed himself, got tired when he walked a long way in the desert sun, 
sometimes was frustrated with the reality of our sinful human condition, and yet he did everything he did without sin. He never ceased to be 100% God. But he voluntarily took upon himself every requirement that was necessary to die in your place and to die in my place. Paul says he made himself of no reputation. He even accepted the form of a slave. He considered the needs of others more important than his own. If that wasn't enough, he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. That's pretty bad news. <laughs> if that's not enough, what does Paul say in verse 8? And being found in fashion as a man, being found in the same form as a man, what did he do? He humbled himself even further. The road to humility doesn't necessarily have an end destination that you and I can determine. But as if it weren't enough that he had already, was already born as a man, as if it wasn't enough that he had already lived 30-some years as a perfect human being in the midst of sinful human creatures, he humbled himself even further. He voluntarily accepted the worst death possible. History records for us that crucifixion was illegal. It was not allowed to be carried out against a Roman citizen. Why? Because it was considered to be so horrendous, so horrible, that no Roman citizen should ever be subjected to it, to the depths of crucifixion. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. There aren't limits to our obedience. There ought not to be limits to our obedience. He had the right perspective of what was more important. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that he did it because he considered what was to be for the saints. He did it because he considered better God's purpose than his own rights. True humility places God's plans above mine. True humility doesn't put limits on obedience and sacrifice. True humility brings honor to God. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even the death of the cross the next time you're worried about your rights think about what jesus did and you know what we think about our rights a lot more than we really realize i have a right to rest i have a right to my own time i shouldn't have to be bothered with such and such i shouldn't have to do this you know, I, I, I don't want to do more because I'm tired. I don't want to do more because I've already done a lot. I have a right to be served. I have a right to be respected. But Jesus went as low as anyone could ever go. And you know what? He gave up his rights for you and for me. Here's the point. You can't do what Jesus did. I can't do what Jesus did. I can't even begin to imagine truthfully what Jesus did. Because Jesus left behind the glories of heaven where he was adored by the throngs of angels, where he was worshipped as the very God of gods, and he came to earth and was born in the most backwater place that existed on the face of the earth and lived on the scope of humanity as a nobody. Sure, he was well known within Israel. He was well known in his own community, but in the grand scope of history, he never wrote a book. He never gave a TV interview. He never, made, he never wrote an internet blog. 
He was known by a small group of people, and yet he did it all? Why? He, he gave up everything? Why? Because he considered God's purpose for his life much more important than his own desires. Because he voluntarily accepted what God required of him because he knew that God's purpose is more important. You can't be like Jesus, and I can't be like Jesus either because we can't give up that much. But if he gave up so much, can't we make little sacrifices for him? If he voluntarily gave up so much for me, can't I say, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do? That's what Paul says, really. Paul doesn't say, be like Jesus, go die on the cross for humanity. Paul says, follow Jesus' example, because if he could give up so much and gain so little for, his, for himself, but gain so much for others because of God's purpose, then you and I can, can do the same today as well. Because God is what is important. How do you measure up to God's standard of humility? I wonder today, are you provoking disunity? Or are you cultivating unity in the church body? Are you stirring up divisions and arguments? Oh, well, I think they should. Or, oh, well, if I were in charge. Or are you submitting to what God is doing as a result of his work? Are you considering others selfishly or unselfishly? God, help nobody to talk to me this morning because I'm kind of tired. You ever prayed that prayer? Maybe you've never prayed it, but you've thought it. God, help those people to find somebody else to bother. God, why can't you just... Are you thinking of others selfishly or unselfishly? Are you understanding of others' needs, or are you blindly doing what pleases you in this life? How well do you follow Christ's model? Do you put others' needs above your own? Do you put God's plan above your own? Do you put limits on your obedience and sacrifice? God, I'll do this, but don't send my kids to Africa. God, I'll do this, but help pastor not to tell me I need to do more. God, I'll do, I'll do, I'll read your Bible a couple of days a week, but every day? I'll go to church on Sunday mornings. Well, that seems pretty good. We can, we can, we'll meet halfway. Are you putting limits on your obedience and your sacrifice? Do you really honor God in your decisions? How can I really be humble? How can you be humble? Why should we be humble? The answer is simple. If Jesus could give up so much for me, then certainly I can give up the little that I have for others. I can serve because he served me. I can sacrifice because he considered me worthy of his sacrifice. If he considered me worthy of his sacrifice, there is no sacrifice I can make that's greater. But I might lose out, you would say. It doesn't seem fair. You won't. Humility is contagious. Did you know that? There's a lot of things that are contagious in life, but humility is contagious. You get busy serving others. You get busy focused on what God wants you to focus on. You're going to gain attention, but not for yourself. You're going to gain attention for God. You get busy focused on the needs of others and allow God to take care of your own needs, and God will accomplish his purpose much greater than you ever could. Here's the key. You can worry about you, and everybody else is going to keep worrying about themselves, and everybody else is going to be divided, and there is going to be no unity and no compassion and no service. But you can put God first and serve his church, and all of a sudden, others will join you, and God will accomplish his purpose. And that is so much greater than anything you and I could ever do on our own. 
God will take care of everything, including your needs. How should this text change your life this week? What are you going to do when your spouse points out another problem or pulls the covers off the bed towards them for the 50th time in the same night? What are you going to do when you have to speak to your kids or your grandkids or maybe you're a teacher, the kids at school for the 5,000th time about the same thing in the same day? How are you going to respond? When your boss or your coworker mistreats you or speaks poorly of you because of your faith or because of how God is working in your life, how will you react? How we live and how we ought to live will utterly transform our lives and our families and our church. But the reality is that most of us aren't going to get it. I'm going to go home and criticize my wife because I just think I'm better. I'm going to fight for my rights because I'm more important. I've sacrificed more. I'm going to demand that others treat me as the important person that I am. I'm going to be like that selfish two-year-old in the nursery right now. Mine, 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 mine. The reality is that most of us are going to go home and live that way. Because selfishness is innately grounded in each of our hearts. But God says, humble yourselves and allow me to work. You know what? We have a real struggle. But we have a real Savior as well. Recognize your faults. Recognize your sin. He already knows it. He's not surprised when we come to him and say, wow, I blew it today. He knows that already. Confess your sin. Ask for his help. Find his strength and his grace and his help that are more than sufficient to the task. And he will transform us to live in humility as he desires each of us to do so. How does your life measure up to God's standard of humility? Maybe you need to work on unity or consideration or perspective. Looking at others as more important than yourself. Working towards fellowship. Working towards a partnership. Maybe you recognize that you have been unwilling to sacrifice. You have been unwilling to humble yourself following the supreme model of Christ's example this morning. I don't know where you're at this morning, but if God is speaking to you, if God is working in your heart, now's the time to take care of that. Don't wait until you get home. Don't wait until after lunch. You're going to forget about it. You're going to get distracted. Your pride's going to come back up. Confess your sin before God. Plead for his mercy and ask for his help And look next door and talk to somebody before you go away this morning. And ask them, how can I be a blessing to you today? Ask God, help me to be a blessing to others today. How do you need to respond this morning?